everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. I'm here as usual with just the zoo of us. I'm excited today to talk to, this is not necessarily a new friend because we've spoken before. This is Dr. Giannis von Kisten. Say hi, Giannis. Hello. Happy to be here. Happy to see you again. Of course. So I say that we've spoken before because you do a podcast called Geekoscopy, which is a really, really fun podcast. And I was on mm. to talk to you, um, I guess it was last year, wasn't it? think so. Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. So we've spoken before. And while we were on that call, you mentioned that you were a marine biologist and you work on estuaries in South mm. Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about your work and how you got into it? Yeah. So I like to call myself kind of a marine and estuarine ecophysiologist, especially with animals. That sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah. I think I have to niche it down quite a bit because like calling myself a marine biologist, like probably puts images in people's minds about like dolphins and whales and stuff. And I don't uh, study anything closely related to dolphins and whales. I'm, I'm on the other side of the, uh, you know, genetic tree close to the closer to the invertebrate side. But essentially what I've enjoyed doing or been interested in during my um, research career is looking at how the changes in the environment affects an animal's health, essentially, its physiology. I have looked at things like how metal toxins in the water, like uh, copper, zinc, um, affect filter-feeding species like mussels. I've done work with coral bleaching, um, specifically looking at ways that corals can mitigate uh, bleaching effects. I've looked at things like how lighting affects how fishes feed. And more recently, I've just looked at various aspects of how the environment and the ways that we change uh, as humans change the environment, how it affects overall fish biology, whether it's the ecology, uh, whether it's, it's their behavior, whether it's, it changes how they feed, how they respire. So, uh, yeah, I'm a marine and estuarine ecophysiologist. <laughs> I love that because it's kind of zoomed out, right? We're looking at not just the animal, but the context that the animal lives in, right? Mm -hmm. Not just the immediate surroundings, like necessarily like the immediate food chain, chain mm -hmm. that this animal is in, right? But everything around it that affects the way it lives, including the way that humans are impacting it. I'm sure you find a lot of really interesting stuff out there. What does your work look like? Like, what does a, a day in the life of an ecophysiologist look like? I think with ecophysiologists, um, a lot of it is bringing animals back from the wilds and putting them in a controlled environment so that you can control various aspects that you want to look at. So if you want to test, okay, if I set the temperature at this, how is that going to affect, you know, uh, the animal or the fish? If I change the salinity, how salty the water is, yeah. If I want to see how that affects uh, how they breathe or anything like that, Um then I can set it and control for everything else. Like if I want to keep the temperature at a certain level or the, you know, salt level, the pH or anything like that. So ecophysiologists will basically change one or two parameters um, and see how it affects the animal so that we can relate in, in the marine environment. We can then predict if, you know, the temperature changes, like we think it's going to global warming, how is that going to affect, you know, the individual animal? And then we can make predictions on the populations. Um, so it's important for figuring out as your environment changes, what's going to happen to the overall ecology 
you told me that your study species is this fish called the Cape Stump Nose. Yes, Brevdosagus halubi. That's very catchy. I love the rhythm to that. That's kind of a bouncy name, <laughs> <Yeah>. isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is rhythmic. Yeah. <laughs> so we. This is not a fish that lives uh, where I live, so I don't know anything about it. Can you no. introduce me a little bit to this Cape Stump Nose? So the Cape Stump Nose is endemic to South Africa. It has a wide distribution along the southern African coast, pretty much all along our borders, also going up into Mozambique a bit. Um, but it's very common here, like it occurs almost everywhere, especially in estuaries where the uh, the baby, uh, I suppose, stage of the fish lives in because the estuaries are, it's a kind of nursery area. That's where um, they grow up before they reach uh, maturity. But they're quite common, um, not necessarily endangered, Yet, but with the global changing world, we are seeing uh, potential impacts that might be affecting um, their ecology. And essentially, they're very important recreationally because a lot of uh, fishermen target them in estuaries and uh, in the marine environment as well. And they're important ecologically because they act kind of like omnivores or herbivores because they feed on like seagrasses. Um, they also are important prey species for larger fish and especially birds in, in estuaries. And a lot of people here like uh, to do birding, a lot of naturalists. And mm -hmm. uh, if you don't have a lot of fish uh, prey species around, you're going to lose the birds as well. So they're quite important uh, in these ecosystems, quite common now, quite uh, numerous because of their relative hardiness compared to, to other species. Uh, so very important to the overall ecosystem. If we could take a quick second to hit pause and give some context to people who live more inland and maybe aren't familiar with like marine and coastal terminology, can you describe what you mean by an estuary? So an estuary is a kind of meeting place between freshwater or riverine systems. So what's like coming down, you know, the mountains, the valleys, getting into streams and then becoming rivers. Um, that's usually not saline, maybe a bit brackish as you come down. So it's very fresh. It's like the water that comes out of your tap, you know. So it's a meeting between that and the salty marine water. That's like what you get at a beach. You know, if you take a sip of that, it's, it's quite salty. So at this meeting place, it creates this very highly productive system because there's a lot of nutrients that comes down, you know, your river streams, um, all things like leaf litter and like twigs and barks that kind of get broken down as it flows down and it gets dissolved and all that nutrients kind of hits this salty environment and it creates this environment that just has so much nutrients that then gets fed to phytoplankton and just like fizzles up uh, the food chain, uh, all the way to like larval and, and juvenile fish. Um, so yeah, estuaries are quite important for productivity because of all the nutrients that's flowing down the river. And also estuaries also serve as these uh, nursery areas um, for what we call early stage fish, also early stage invertebrates and anything planktonic. Because it's kind of a sheltered environment compared to an open, large marine ecosystem where there's very big predators, um, you know, floating around ready to, to eat anything. Um, there's a lot of different, you know, nooks and crannies 
that occurred in estuary, like, you know, um, seaweed grass beds or mud flats or mangroves or any tiny holes that little things can, can hide uh, from and also potentially feed on. So it's, it's just this really cool place where a lot of ecological action is happening. <laughs> you know, it's really important, not only in that place, but then further out uh, into the marine environment where all the adults uh, of the, of some of these animals are that, you know, then spawn and um, the babies then go and try and find the estuaries once again so they can they grow up and it goes in this uh, cycle. And we usually call those type of species marine estuarine dependent species. So they're dependent on estuaries for their entire life cycle. And if they don't have access to estuaries, it's potentially very you know destructive um, for populations. And then you also get some other fishes and animals that just use estuaries just because they can you know but they don't really need to um, so we call those marine marine opportunists um, so they also use uh, estuaries especially the smaller ones to to grow up so it's a yeah very important ecosystem that's important overall to not only the ecology of the ecosystems but also um, you know if you want to go and start you know catching fish um, if they don't complete their life cycle, you're not going to get any fish uh, to catch. So it's important also for food security and, and recreation and yeah, integral, integral systems. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I think that maybe it's not something that people think about very often, right? If you're not necessarily mm. living in these estuary like areas where you'll find these sort of meeting places between the marine environment and the freshwater environment. It makes more sense when you think about it. Like they've got to meet somewhere, <laughs> right? Like yeah, you don't just, sure. yeah. so, there's not like a line in the sand where it's like everything yeah. past this point is freshwater. <laughs> yeah, it's not a force field where there's a barrier like between <laughs> salty and fresh water. Salt may not pass through here. <laughs> yeah, you shall not pass. Salt. <laughs> so the the Cape stump nose is a fish that you mentioned mm. has their babies in the. I love this word nursery. Mm. They have a nursery in the estuary, which I think is very um, charming uh, to me. Yeah. Do the adults hang out in the estuary, or do they kind of like leave their babies and and just kind of peace out? No, the adults are spawning are at uh, in the near environment so they're not really anywhere near uh, the estuary after reaching you know sexual maturity when they become a sub-adult or an adult they're actually they kind of teeth changes and they begin feeding on something totally different so oh. the plankton is feeding on you know other zooplankton it's like invertebrate larvae or copepods and things like that and then when they become juveniles they're then feeding on um, the vegetation. They kind of want access to things that are living on the vegetation, like smaller plants or algae or other animals that are living on it. That's what they actually are digesting. And then when they get to adulthood, they really want to go uh, back out at sea and feed on um, things that are that are growing out there. So, yeah, the adults are not usually hanging around where the uh, the juveniles are. You mentioned that they're important as both sort of predator and prey, right? So since they have this sort of important, like, middle level in the food chain, I guess I shouldn't say food chain, right? We don't say food chain anymore. The yeah. food... Yeah, it's a web, yeah. The food <laughs> web, the food sphere. It's very multifaceted. 
good. Yeah. You know? And especially when you're looking at things like in estuaries, a certain species might hold different levels on the food chain. And sometimes species are like feeding on the young uh, as well. So it's like it wraps around all the linkages in an estuary. It's very convoluted. It's not a chain at all. It's a messy net here. I know. I think we should stop getting the word food chain like embedded into like little kids' minds and be like, it's not that simple. It's Mm. okay. (laughs) But so for the Cape stump nose that is both predator and prey, this is a good opportunity to talk about our first category that we rate animals on, which is our whole thing that we do for this particular podcast, if this is your first time listening. Our first category that we rate animals on is effectiveness. And these are physical adaptations that let the animal do a good job of the things that it's trying to do. So this animal is trying to eat things, is trying not to get eaten by other things, is trying to make more of itself. <laughs> so yeah. it has some some goals in mind. What would you rate the Cape Stump Nose out of ten for effectiveness? Oh, I would I would rate it. Yeah, I would rate it a ten out of ten. Really? It's, it's designed. <laughs> it is designed to survive and reproduce. I, I like to call it. I affectionately like to call this Cape Stump Nose like the cockroach of the sea. <gasps> It's very, what? Oh, the cockroach of estuaries. It's very <laughs> difficult to kill them. Really? They can survive at salinities almost like three times uh, marine water, so like up to 90 salinity. It's pretty difficult to kill them. So they're actually usually one of the last like fish to remain in estuary during a drought where, you know, all the fresh water kind of gets uh, evaporated out and you get salinities up to like 70, 80, 90. And the juveniles are adapted to live in vegetated areas. So they kind of try and hide away from a lot of potential predators. So they have, you know, behavioral adaptations for that. Um, they also feed on, on what's sheltering them. So, you know, they're getting nutrition. You have to have a certain type of, of dentistry in order to, to feed that way. Um, whereas, you know, other fish are just designed to like just gulp and, and scoop prey. Um, they're busy like chewing away like, <laughs> like cows in a field. <laughs> when you say dentistry, what does fish dentistry look like? Jeez, that's difficult. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't looked at it too, too deeply, but of course you're going to have a different way of eating if you have to chomp on a piece of, of grass versus just swallow a tiny fish. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be able to cut through and, you know, sift out. I don't think they necessarily have anything to sift out, but fish have different type of ways of feeding. You have like gill rakers, which kind of like you know, swallow uh, water and kind of filter tiny invertebrates out. You have fish like the parrotfish that kind of feed on corals and things. So they have like a beak-like mouth. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there's tons of fish in the ocean estuaries and there's tons of ways they can eat things and they need to be adapted to eat that way. You know, it's like the Downs Finches type of of story. Yeah. Does the Cape Stump Nose kind of have like the best of both worlds because he said it's like omnivorous so it sounds like they're able to go either way really it sounds like they can you know eat little critters or have themselves a little salad snack if they want to (laughs) yeah for sure yeah like when i bring them back from the wild into the lab i'm feeding them on freshly hatched brine shrimp so they do feed you know in that predatory way as well they can is this a particularly big fish in the estuaries, they only go up to about, I think, 14 centimeters before they consider it an adult or a subadult. 
Um, so you catch them between like four centimeters and about 140 millimeters, so 14 centimeters. Yeah. So basically like the size of your finger to maybe your palm. That is about five and a half inches for people like me who use imperial units, tragically. Yeah, all two countries that do. (laughs) (laughs) All whopping two countries. I'm still trying to push for that metric conversion, but that's just me. Um, It's an uphill battle. (laughs) One day we'll join the rest of you. (laughs) It's really funny to me that you called them the cockroach Estuary because that seems like <laughs> yeah. it has a negative connotation, but I get what you mean. Like they're indestructible, they're hardy, mm. really resistant to, I, I suppose, environmental changes. Very resilient, too. Yeah. When it comes to predators that may be trying to eat them, what are their primary sort of predator concerns? And do they have anything that they can use? Like, do they have any tools in their belt that can help them not get eaten? Jeez, I mean, the, the, Predatory concerns would be larger, you know, piscivorous fish. Well, piscivorous means you're feeding on fish. Mm-hmm. So if you say a piscivorous fish, it's a fish that feeds on, on fish. Then you have birds as well. And yeah, those are the major, the two major threats, I think, for them. And like I said, it's, it's mostly behavioral, like they're hiding away where they can. But in terms of defense, I don't think they've adapted that well into to overall defense. I think most of the, you know, the the points that they used up in the evolutionary chain is all going to like salinity uh, resistance. They maxed out their constitution score. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's, it just looks like a, a silver fish. But yeah, internally, when you look underneath the surface, that's where the interesting stuff, you know, happens. So. Well, let's dig into that then. So. The next category that we rate animals on is ingenuity. So this is behavioral adaptations that the animal does, things that they do with their body to help them eat other things, not get eaten themselves, and make more of themselves. What do you give them out of 10 for ingenuity? Ingenuity, I would give them probably a solid eight. Okay, that's pretty good. They're pretty good in figuring out where their niche is. They try and hide themselves away. Um, they reproduce in large numbers. Um, they're very opportunist in the way that they kind of spawn. They, they spawn pretty much throughout the year. It's a very like short period where they're not spawning. And yeah, so they're busy looking for an estuary to, to get into once they spawn out at sea and in very high numbers. So it's, it's one of those species where, you know, you fight with, with numbers instead of, uh, you know, personal protection. <laughs> um, and yeah, use, use behavioral methods of, of hiding yourself and not being eaten. They're like, we'll just make so many of us that one of us is bound to survive. <laughs> yeah. It works. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. If you think about, you know, how hardy they are in terms of salinity. That means they are able to occupy many more estuaries than other fish would be able to. Um, so they just have a larger opportunity to exist um, mm. than certain other fishes would be able to. That's very clever. I love this, that they're more of like a generalist than a specialist, right? So they're like, all right, we might not be absolutely amazing at this thing, but instead we're Mm going to be kind of good at being anywhere we want. For sure. Kind of like us in that regard. (laughs) (laughs) 
when you go out, you catch them in the wild, you bring them back. Uh, is it to to a lab mm. that you bring them to? Or like, what is the environment like that you are studying them in? Yeah, it's a, essentially like an, uh, it's an aquarium, um, you know, like you would have for keeping pet fish. We have ones that are more sterile and controlled. We put them in there and then we will take them out and put them into whatever type of apparatus we're using to measure. You know, if it's, uh, if we're measuring respiration, you know, you put them into an oxygen chamber and you measure what, how well they are breeding. If you want to test, you know, how the salinity levels are, then you just put them in different kind of containers with different salinities and you see how they react to them. You know, if you're doing like blood work, you would you know, take a drop of blood and look at cortisol. If you want to look at stress, um, lipids, all types of potential things, DNA, if you wanted to. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a wide variety of, you know, different instruments I've used over the years. And that's, I think, is kind of what's cool about, you know, doing physiological work. You know, you could test multiple different, uh, what we would call biomarkers and look at how they react to however you're trying to torture them. Uh, oh, the no. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're, when you're changing these sort of circumstances that, that you're observing them in, does this change their behavior? Like, say you change the salinity or you change the temperature or you change whatever marker about the water that you're looking at. Like, does that seem to phase them as far as their behavior goes? Or are they just kind of living their life the, the only way they know how? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you do get various um, different behaviors with fish, depending on what kind of um, what you're suge- subjecting them to. Um, generally, if fish are kind of stressed out in some way, some of them will kind of um, try and breathe using the air. So they'll come up to the surface and they'll kind of like bubble then, yeah, if a fish is really struggling, they might just be like swimming around frantically trying to get out of it. Oh, no, poor baby. <laughs> yeah, if, if something is close to dying, it's probably like gone belly up and like it's swimming upside down. If fish are kind of, if they have like bacterial parasites or whatever, they'll try and like scrape their skin against, you know, the side of the tank and stuff like that. Um, So there's various different adaptations that they ma- might have. Um, sometimes, you know, they just want to, if, if they find it difficult to breathe, um, then they'll like kind of fan their gills. So yeah, there's various, you know, different behavioral things that they could do. Uh, but a lot of it is going to be um, what's going on inside, you know, with, especially when it comes to things like salinity, you know, they have internal mechanisms, renal pathways, different ways that, you know, their gills are actually trying to um, get the salt out. You know, when it comes to Rhabdosagus, they have really good chloride cells that can excrete chloride back into the environment. It's actually new research that uh, one of my friends is doing in the lab now. That's really exciting. It, they're just such a hardy species on the inside. Um, that they have, I think, less uh, outward effects until it's really bad. Like, I think you only start seeing them really look distressed at like twice the salinity of, of seawater, which is pretty high. It's like around 70, 80. And then, yeah, they, they're not happy <laughs> that you just put them in very salty water and they try to like get out. This is absolutely not the canary in the coal mine, right? These things are like... <laughs> <laughs> no. These things will make it to the core of the earth before they're like phased by anything. 
Yeah, they're not what we would call bioindicator species that will, you know, tell you ahead of time if there's anything that's going wrong. They will be the last ones there. <laughs> that's great for them. Is that ever like kind of frustrating that like no matter what you do to them, they're like, this is fine. <laughs> yeah, I suppose when it comes to the data that comes out and it's not really that neat that it shows a significant difference. So I suppose that's a bit frustrating when you're writing up. But obviously, like, I don't really want to see any type of animal that's kind of like in distress, you know? So yeah. Like, I suppose I'm rooting for the fish <laughs> to actually survive. I suppose it's a double-edged sword, this type of work, yeah. Are these fish that, do they get along with each other? Like, do they kind of group up and swim with other Cape Stump noses or are they just doing their own thing? Yeah, they do show. Um, they do swim around together. It's quite cool, actually, because they would actually also show with other other types of silverfish as well. And they do it like very innately. It's like kind of a, we need to like stick together and like keep each other safe. And like with, you know, herds of zebra that try, you know, kind of confuse predators visually. Yeah, they're going to be cool with um, some of the marine opportunists like uh we have a very similar species um, called a blacktail, which looks pretty much like a cape stumpnose. It just has like a black spot on its tail. There, there are other other differences, but it's like difficult to see from far. And they're opportunists, so they they don't need uh, the estuary um, for their life cycle. But they do hang around with cape stumpnose um, in shoals and in, in in the you know grass patches, the seagrass patches. Also, on the smaller end, um, the larvae might also hang around with mullet larvae sometimes. So, yeah, they're, they're cool with other fish, I think, their size. <laughs> like a friendship based on not being able to fit in each other's mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the general idea. Yeah, If you can't eat me, I'm pretty much your friend. <laughs> Unless you're small enough for me to eat you, in which case, you know, your dinner. A bond based on similar size. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. I wish that humans could be like that. You'd be like, hey, we're roughly the same size. Let's buddy up. <laughs> yeah. You're going the sa down the same road, right? Yeah, I'll just join you. Yeah. If we're talking ingenuity, that's a pretty clever thing to do, right? Like group up with all your buds mm. so that <laughs> kind of goes back to that, like they can't eat all of us thing, right? Like, oh, well, yeah. if there's 20 of us all swimming together, then that decreases the chance of the predator eating you because now there's 19 yeah. other fish you could eat. Exactly. Yeah comes down to numbers it's just less opportunity for you to get eaten if you're surrounded by you know 20 other guys it's that uh that adage of like you don't have to be the fastest you just have to run faster than the other guy <laughs> <laughs> the slowest guy yeah <laughs> yeah for sure so the last category that we rate animals on is aesthetics and you kind of mm. you kind of have described the way that this fish looks already. But what would you score this animal on for aesthetics? And aesthetics is totally arbitrary. It's just your opinion. Tell us, like, how nice are they are they to look at? I mean, I would say they're average. I give it a maybe five, maybe a six on a good day. Um, <laughs> it, <yeah. laughs> it's it's not something that is so like distinguishable from other species that are similar to it. You know. Um, like if you pull a seine net in the estuary 
if you catch a few of these, you're not going to be as excited as if you caught like a very funky looking goby that's, you know, brightly colored, um, or a cuttlefish. Sometimes you're going to look at the cuttlefish instead of, uh, one of these other silverfish that seems to like just be thousands of them. So I, I like, you know, silverfish in terms of the importance in, in the overall estuary. They're not very charismatic compared to other types of more colorful things, but their importance is so integral to the ecosystem functioning. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I came on this podcast to give some props to just bland looking fish because they're, <laughs> they're important. So we need to focus on them. You know, it might not be like a red lip batfish or a black tip shark or, or, or you know, anything funky uh, that you can find in, in the deep sea or anything, but they play such a, integral part of the ecosystem so they need a bit more attention i think oh yeah they're they're a little more subtle with their style <laughs> yeah low-key low-key fish yeah also like you know when you're not so flashy and you're not so colorful you're not necessarily drawing attention to yourself right so like mm. maybe a little bit an- advantageous to them to not be so ornamented i suppose i don't know if that plays into it at all but there could be some function to the form also not being so you know flashy looking i suppose it gets them around is it ever at all difficult to find the fish not not rebdesogus alubi i think um if you pull a net over any seagrass zostrocopensis eelgrass uh, patch you're probably gonna get a a cape stump nose in there or, or a black tail if you're looking, um, like I said, there are very common species in South African estuaries. Almost, almost u- ubiquitous, I think is the word <laughs> that some, uh, fish biologists use. Um, so yeah, they're, they're around and there's a lot of them. That is just a testament to how successful they are. They are success stories. Yeah. Oh yeah. When you can be found, like, you know, it's like throw a rock and you're going to hit one. Like, I feel like that is just yeah. the hallmark of like a successful animal. And, and in a lot of different estuaries with different, you know, temperatures, different salinities, different types of habitats. Yeah. That you can find them in very diverse environments. I love this fish. And I also feel like I have a deeper appreciation for like, a lot of times I'll go out to maybe like uh, the stream or the beach or something like that and see tons of these, you know, just little unassuming, you know, like minnows or just little, little guys, right? Just swimming around in the water. And I think it's easy to just kind of shrug them off and discount them. But I think that I have a better uh, appreciation now for the, the subtle guys, right? The regular guys, yeah. (laughs) The average Joe, just your everyday fish. (laughs) They're very cool. So before we wrap up, I wanted to kind of let you talk to us about anything that you're working on right now. I'd love for you to talk about Geekoscopy and boost that a little bit and like where people can find you and stuff. Currently, my in terms of research work, I'm looking at what exactly attracts, you know, the baby fish to the estuaries. We have a general idea, but we don't know exactly. So that's what my current research is about. Um, just to, I think, put a overall cap on the, the research science side. Um, and then, yeah, I, I like to say that I'm a scientist by day and, and an internet content creator by night. And I've started many, many different podcasts and YouTube and I've written blogs and various different ways to communicate over the internet. And now I've decided to kind of blend 
you know, my daytime uh, work with, you know, my nighttime kind of hobbies. And that ended up in looking at, you know, funky and interesting ways that we can communicate science going from, you know, uh, the scientist and a research paper, which is very difficult for an average lay person to be able to read and understand, to then combining that in a way that can be consumed and digested by, you know, the general public or the average um, dude on the street. And, you know, different scientists are now trying to look at different ways in order to teach what they are uh, busy researching. And it's not every person is going to be able to consume that kind of information in any media form. Like different people like to consume uh, information in different ways, whether it's, you know, um, listening to a podcast when you kind of, you know, cooking, cleaning and stuff like that versus watching a a video essay uh, on YouTube that's, you know, well-produced and this kind of very, you know, flashy images that's, <laughs> that, you know, keeps you captivated. Or if it's, you know, a, a full blockbuster movie versus, you know, a, a series, or maybe even, you know, trying to convey information while somebody is engrossed uh, in a video game, you know, where they have, you know, more than just their attention. It's it's also like tactical and and physical. So Geekoscopy 101 is a podcast where I like to explore this this kind of meeting place, uh, this nexus between uh, the science, the research, the different stories that we can tell with that research, and then different stories that that scientists have during their course of uh, researching, and also general stories that just captivates people um, so that they can sort of as a side uh, effect learn something something new. So yeah, I like to just wonder and philosophize about how um, we can convey this information so that different people can understand it and then it may, you know, change the way that they make decisions in the future that'll help out you know their fellow man and everyone and us push the uh, the drive forward in, for humanity and we don't end up in a you know galactic ditch <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so yeah that's the general idea behind Geekoscopy 101 it's very fun i interview different science communicators like you i was on there and it was very fun um we we talked for a good while and i'm pretty sure wasn't vikram also didn't vikram join you as well yeah, Dr. Baliga was on there yeah. talking about his podcast. Um, I think we actually got to the podcast <laughs> like last because he's just <laughs> so entertaining and just so <laughs> interesting to talk to. So we were talking about Psycom in general. <laughs> what a dream team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <for sure. laughs> and where can people best find Geekoscopy 101? So you, you can go to geekoscopy.com. And you should be able to find everything there. Otherwise, I have a link tree. So I think it's link.tree slash geekoscopy. And you'll find links to all of my various uh, different platforms that you can go and you know like, follow, subscribe to. Definitely. I highly recommend it. It is a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> of course. Well, I think that's all we've got for today. So I just want to thank you for your time and your knowledge, sharing all of your knowledge about this little fish with us and also about like mm. the ecology of estuaries and the sort of, you know, zoomed out context that the fish lives in. And just it, that's an important piece of it, right? Like it's not just about the individual animal. It's about everything going on around it. Um, yeah. So hopefully maybe we've inspired a brand new ecofish 
physiologist out there who might be listening, like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for giving me the opportunity. It's been fun chatting. Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. Cheers. Bye. Bye.